Well, I'm sure that for those of you who have been here the last few weeks, you know that we've started our Advent series early. Even though today is the first day of Advent or the first Sunday of Advent, we've already started looking forward to the birth of Christ. And we've been doing so by looking at the different covenants God made with his people in the Old Testament. And this morning we have the covenant God made with Moses. In it, we will see the shadows of our Savior. So let us stand now for the reading of God's word. This is God's word for you and for me. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words that the Lord had spoken and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Then Moses took half the blood and he put it in basins and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and he said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. And there under his feet, as it were, pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and they ate and they drank. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law of the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has dispute, let them go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud was covering the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and for 40 nights. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. May he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Our great and gracious Heavenly Father, as we behold your glory in this text, we pray that we would see your goodness all the more. And we pray and ask that by your Spirit we would be encouraged and strengthened in these words. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, it was on Sunday, May 18th, in 1980, 41 years ago, on a magnificently clear and beautiful morning that three rope teams of four persons had set out before dawn to reach the summit of Mount Adams in Washington State. At 8.32 a.m., as they were approaching the summit of this glacier-clad volcano, they paused to enjoy the unparalleled views of the sister volcanoes Mount Rainier and Mount St. Helens. One of the climbers, Fred Grimm, stopped, looked over, and gasped. And these are the words that he shared. First, I saw just a little puff of smoke at the top of the mountain. And then within two or three seconds, it appeared that the whole north side of Mount St. Helens blew out from itself. The whole top of the mountain was engulfed in a column of smoke. It rose like an atomic explosion with the sort of shockwave that went to the north. This is really eerie. Suddenly, the wind that had been blowing over the top of us stopped. The volcano seemed to suck up the wind and it didn't come back for four or five minutes. These climbers had an unbelievable view, being only 35 miles away from Mount St. Helens when it erupted. And as they were looking out, a black cloud began to fill the sky, blotting out the sun. And then all at once, the heavy fall of volcanic debris began to fall on them as their view was obscured by the cloud of ash. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. What a sight it must have been to watch the mountain blow 600 feet of its summit into the air as it threw dirt and ash and smoke 50,000 feet into the atmosphere. Other eyewitnesses talked about how they could see, hear, and even feel the eruption as it was taking place. In the two months prior to May 18th, earthquake after earthquake after earthquake had begun to grow not only in frequency but in power. People knew that the fateful day was coming when it was going to erupt. And so you can almost feel or if you go and watch a video and see these pictures, you can see what it must have been like, the violence of this mountain. I think that gives us a little bit of texture to what it must have been like when Moses and the men and women of Israel had come to the base of a different mountain. Not one that was erupting from within, but one upon which God in all of his glory, splendor, and power had descended on. It was Mount Sinai, and it's here that God is going to make his covenant with the people of Israel. And it was really a terrifying sight. Moses gives us an eyewitness account of what it was like, and it really gives us the context of covenant with the Lord. In Exodus 19, Moses said, On the morning of the third day, See, they had been at the base of the mountain. God had given the people instructions after they had been brought out of Egypt to come to this mountain. They set up boundaries that they couldn't cross because they would be struck down dead from the holiness of God. They also had consecrated themselves. They had washed themselves. They washed their clothes. They abstained from certain things so that they would be prepared to meet with God. And on the third day, 
there were thunderings and lightnings. There was a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire and the smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln. It was billowing up into the sky, into the atmosphere and the whole mountain was trembling greatly. Earthquakes were taking place. Thunder, lightning, trumpet, smoke. The sound grew louder and louder and louder. And when all the people saw it, Moses says that they stood far off and they were afraid. And they begged Moses, you go to the mountain, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Mount Sinai when the Lord had descended, had that apocalyptic kind of feeling. Like this would make a great scene in a movie. All these people, two and a half million people who had been brought out of Egypt, who had been longing and waiting to meet with their God. And when the time has finally come, they're afraid that even his voice will strike them down. Moses is showing the distinct difference between holy God and sinful man. They can't just approach him in relationship. They first need to come and respect the boundaries. They see what's going on and so they beg Moses. They say, you go up. And at the end of Exodus 20, these words are so great. At the end of Exodus chapter 20, as the people stood far off, it says, Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. That is where Moses is just before Exodus 24 our text this morning. When he has drawn near to the thick darkness where Yahweh God Almighty is, he is being given the covenant agreement that the people are going to have to listen to and obey. God says, if you want to be in a relationship with me, if the people of Israel want to be in relationship with me, then because of their sin, there are certain standards that need to be met. There are certain things that need to take place. And so Moses is going to act as the mediator for the people of God. He's going to officiate a covenant ceremony. That's what's taking place in verses 3 through 8. So in the backdrop, we've got this horrifying mountain. All the smoke, the lightning, the thunder. The glory of God before the people. And then there is the ceremony. Look at verses 3 through 8. There's a lot going on in these verses and when you read it on first read, it could seem a little bit confusing what all is taking place. And so I'll just try to summarize it briefly and with just with a little bit of clarity. Moses comes down from the mountain. He has the word that the Lord has spoken. And he meets with the people in verse 8 and he tells them all the words that have been said. This is the start of the covenant ceremony. It's like, it's like the start of a wedding service or it's like the start of signing all the papers that you have to go through when you're buying a house. He reads what the agreement is going to be. The people hear it and they say that they are going to accept it. They say we will do all, that the, word, all the words that the Lord has spoken. And Moses moves to the next phase. He sets up the altar and he sets up the 12 pillars. These are meant to represent the two parties that are involved in this contractual agreement. 
the altar representing Yahweh and his participation, and the 12 pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Once he has erected those things, we come to the center of the text. The sacrifices that need to be made. See, at the heart of the Mosaic Covenant, one of its key purposes, not the only one, but one of the key purposes was so that the people of God could be in relationship with their God. So that they could be married to him and that they could be his bride. And so in order for them to be able to approach him, sacrifice has to be made. And there are two key sacrifices made in our text. First, we have the burnt offering. This was a sacrifice of atonement. Moses had the young men offer burnt offering on the altar so that the people could come into the presence of the Lord in this moment. Second, there was the blood offering with the bulls. This was being offered as a peace offering, as a fellowship offering, so that they could enjoy being in the presence with God. And so when Moses has these sacrifices made, he collects the blood. And then he takes half the blood and he throws it on the altar. Or he kind of sprinkles it on the altar. But it would have been a lot of blood. And so you've got all the smoke, all the fire, all the sounds, all, all the lightnings and the thunders and the trumpets. And then you've got all this blood and the sound of the animals that are being sacrificed. And it's showing this solemnity and the seriousness of coming to the place where God has set down. And he throws the blood on the altar. And the blood is representing God as he says, let this happen to me if I do not keep my end of the covenant agreement. God, it's like his signature in pen, but it's done with blood. A covenant is a bond in blood. After he does that, Moses then takes the words which he has now written down. He's put on paper all the words the Lord has said and he reads them a second time. This is so that the people of Israel will absolutely know and be sure of what they're agreeing to. And they respond by saying, we will do all the Lord has commanded. And then they emphatically say, we will be obedient. See, this covenant that's being made, it's not being made to save them. They've already been brought out of Egypt. It's a covenant that's allowing them to be brought into relationship with their God. And so when they do this, Moses then takes the blood and he throws it onto the people themselves. And the covenant ceremony is wrapped up in a statement, in a signature of the people saying, let it be done to us as it was done to these animals if we don't uphold our end of the agreement. I mean, think about what this ceremony must have been like in the context of everything going on. It's oozing with this apocalyptic end timesy feel. And the seriousness and the solemnity of the moment is brought to the fore at the foot of a mountain in which Yahweh has descended in a devouring fire. And here the people who have been waiting for hundreds of years are getting to meet with their God. And God is saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. You will be my treasured possession. You will be my kingdom of priests. You will be a holy nation. And you will be my children. You will be my bride. It's a really, it's a beautiful and exciting moment. A pivotal moment in the book of Exodus. Exodus 34 is kind of the high point. Because shortly after, sorry, Exodus 24. Because shortly after Exodus 24, we know what happens. 
Just like we talked about in the confession of sin that Chris talked about so well, the unfaithfulness of the people. The golden calf comes after Exodus 24. But before that happens, there's this glorious moment when the people of God have been married to the Father and there is a beautiful celebration. And it's at this point that I think we come to what might be one of the most beautiful scenes in the whole of the Old Testament. Verses 9 through 11, the elders of Israel are invited to come up the mountain to a certain point. And so Moses, Nadab, Abihu, Aaron, and the 70 elders, they start to summit. They start to go up into the cloud, into the smoke. And they come to this place where heaven breaks in and touches down for a moment. They come to this place where they see God with their eyes. They see a veiled portion of him. They don't see him in his full glory. If they saw him in his full glory, they would have been struck down dead in that moment. But it says that they saw his feet and at his feet were beautiful sapphire paving stones like the clearness of heaven. This is one of those moments you wish you could have gotten to see with your own eyes. It's an unbelievable moment. It's something that hasn't happened before in the Old Testament. Here, God has stepped down and he meets with his people. They see him and Moses says he did not strike down any one of them. He didn't raise his hand against any of the leaders. Instead, what is it that they got to do? It says they beheld God and they ate and they drank. It was customary after covenant agreements that had been made for the two parties involved to sit at a table with one another. And this moment should be jaw-dropping in the sense that as we're looking at it, they are getting to enjoy one of the most intimate and beautiful pictures of fellowship and relationship with their God. They get to sit at his table, behold his glory, and eat and drink of his food. Awesome. It's an awesome picture. It shows the close fellowship that is now taking place. Well, after this, Moses and Joshua are told to come up a little bit further. But ultimately, Moses goes to the top of the mountain. He draws near to the place where God is. And as he draws near, the Lord then is going to speak to him and give him his law and the commandments. He's going to explain to Moses the need for the priesthood. He's going to show him the instructions for building the tabernacle. The sacrificial system, that's eventually going to be coming into play with all of this. See, the Lord is preparing and providing Moses and the people of Israel with the means for them to be in relationship with him. A holy God and a sinful people. There are certain things that need to be in place. There has to be a mediator. There has to be a sacrifice. There's a place where God dwells and there has to be separation from the people so that not anyone can just go in and meet with him. All of that is seen in this text. And all of that is meant to be a shadow pointing towards our Savior who offers better mediation, who offers a better covenant, who offers greater and more intimate relationship than what's seen here. 
You see, the shadows of the Savior are found throughout all of the covenants. And like David said when we were doing, I think it was the Noahic covenant, like the idea of the eye test, where as we look at the progressive covenants, each one you get to see a little more clearly who the Lord Jesus was going to be, what his role was going to be, what he would do for his people. We have that here. I think it's so clear. I can't imagine the Davidic covenant being more clear, but it will be. But here in the Mosaic covenant, we see first that Jesus is a better mediator than Moses. See, Moses, he's going to die. He can't be a mediator forever. Not only is Moses going to die, we also know that Moses is a sinner. That he doesn't get to enter into the promised land because of his sin. Not so with the Lord Jesus. There is no mediatorial turnover. We don't have priest after priest after priest after priest who represents us before the Father. Instead, we have Jesus himself. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. Through him, since he always lives to make intercession. Hebrews also says that for Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He's acting as the perfect mediator for you and me so that we can approach the throne of grace with boldness, but also in reverence. He's made a way for us to go where the people of Israel really couldn't. We also see that his table fellowship is better. You know, there's a lot of shadows we could point to and we aren't going to look at them all. But another one of these is that his table fellowship is better. The supper that they enjoy in verses 9 through 11, the elders of Israel, when they go up and they see God, that is a picture of our future hope when we will get to dine at the marriage table of the Lamb. When we will enjoy that great wedding feast in glory where we will get to behold him not veiled in cloud. But that we'll get to look at him full in his wonderful and glorious face. Where we will sit and we will eat and we will drink with the Savior. You know that's pictured in the Lord's table too. That's something that we get to participate in every week that we get to see as a foreshadowing of what is to come. This wedding feast with the Lamb. In Revelation, I mean, it talks about the wedding feast of the Lamb. Chapter 19, it says, Then I heard what seemed to be a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. There's a day when we will get to enjoy that in its fullness. But I think the shadow that maybe is the largest in Exodus 24 is how Jesus offers the better blood, the better sacrifice, the better covenant. Sacrifice was absolutely necessary for the people to enter into relationship with God. They couldn't come into his presence without atonement. Their sin required the penalty of death. 
That's what's going on in Exodus 24. To offer a sacrifice in the place of one's own death is called propitiation. And here in Exodus 24, we have the shadows of what is the sign and seal of the new covenant. I don't know if you caught it when we read it, but in Exodus chapter 24 verse 8, Moses, as he's getting ready to throw the blood on the people, he says familiar words. Not exactly the same words, but familiar words with what we do every week at the Lord's table. Moses said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Exodus 24 was certainly in the background when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples and he was establishing the new covenant with the Lord's Supper. When Jesus said, not this is the blood of the covenant, but this is my blood of the covenant. In the book of Hebrews, we read that the blood of bulls and goats was insufficient for taking away the sins of man. Because the bulls and the goats didn't commit the sin. Man did. And so a perfect man who lived a perfect life needed to be sacrificed for sin to be forgiven. That's exactly what Jesus did on the cross for you and for me. He says, this is my blood of the covenant. A covenant that is a bond in blood, sealed perfectly by him. What a shadow we get to look at all these thousands of years before he had been born in Bethlehem. This covenant ceremony is reflected in the Lord's Supper. It's a ceremony that is pointing to the Lord's Supper. And it gives us this great sense of how the Old and the New Testament work together. How there's so much continuity. It really is. It's amazing to think about. But when you have this kind of moment, when the glory of God is so displayed as the backdrop of a covenant ceremony, it really puts you in a place of awe and wonder at who he is. It changes the way you worship him. It makes you think a little more seriously about the covenant that was made on your behalf on Calvary, on the cross. But I think what maybe is one of the most applicable points is dealing with the question of how can we approach a holy God while being sinners. The same God who descended on Mount Sinai is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And apart from the blood of Jesus Christ, we couldn't do it. But what this is showing is how deeply God wanted relationship with his people. Exodus 24 is a picture of God's desire to engage in meaningful, intimate relationship with those he had called his own. What kind of relationship can we have with our God? The requirements were the same. Sacrifice, perfect sacrifice. But the requirement for us to enter into that relationship now is faith in Jesus. As we put our faith in him who sacrificed himself, who's acted as our mediator, who's acted as our sacrifice, we now can have relationship with him. He so longed to save us. He so longed to adopt us. 
He wanted us as his sons and his daughters. He longs for us to call him father. And in order for us to do that, he was willing to pay the ultimate price of putting Jesus on the cross for us. That's what's also displayed in the table before us. What food for the soul is this? That God did not spare his only son, but he gave him up so that we might be called his sons and his daughters. Exodus 24 is a glorious chapter. And the new covenant that's made in Jesus Christ shines all the more. Let's give him thanks and praise. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. And we give you thanks for the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. We ask now as we come to the table that you would encourage us in this truth. That you love us and that you long for us to know you and be known by you. Lord, we thank you that you've made a way for us to be able to enter into your presence with boldness and confidence, knowing that we will not be struck down, but instead the righteousness of Christ is now upon us. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.